Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Continuing in our consideration of Matthew's Gospel, we come this morning to chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. It's a very small passage, uh, but very rich. So let's read it together. These are the words of God. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bring your word to us now by the Spirit. You have told us your kingdom does not consist in speech, but in the demonstration of the power of your Spirit. And that is what we desire this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So, in our general setting, you remember Jesus has come into Jerusalem in every possible way, claiming to be the Messiah without actually saying the words himself. He is uh, teaching in the temple daily, and he has been confronted in turn by each of the power groups within the uh, rulership structure of Israel of that day. He's already been uh, tested by the Pharisees once. He's been tested by the Sadducees, and now the Pharisees have regrouped. They've huddled up again, and uh, one of them, a lawyer, has come to ask him a question and test him once again. Now, lawyer means a scribe. It means those who were devoted to the study and the exposition of the law of Moses. So this is one of the scribes, one of the legal experts. And he asks him a question regarding which is the great command. Now, you have to remember, we, we kind of take that answer for granted because we know what Jesus says. And furthermore, uh, we don't tend to spend as much time today uh, studying all the permutations of the law. But the scribes had counted up 613 commands in the law. So 613 commands, and they spent all their time studying all of them. So the question then becomes, uh, which is the great commandment? Obviously, some of the 613 commands are going to be weightier than others, and the issue of which ones were weightier, which ones were more important than others, was a topic that was often discussed by the rabbis. And what we have is the idea that the closer an individual law comes to the fundamental purposes and goals of the law as a whole, then the weightier that law or command will be. So if you picture the law like a tree, the closer a branch comes to the trunk of the tree, the weightier the branch is going to be, the heavier it's going to be, and the more important it will be, the more will rest upon it. The skinny branches that are way out at the exterior of the tree are going to be lighter, and their place will be less essential. 
uh, I'm not essential, but less central. And so, therefore, the application of the skinny branches is going to be more uh, determined by context. The, the application of commands that are way out toward the periphery are going to be more determined by context. Anytime a skinny branch becomes relevant, there are necessarily a number of other weightier branches also relevant and more important. And that's the way the law is intended to be implied. Jesus himself has said elsewhere that some portions of the law are weightier than others. At one point, he got on to the, uh, to the uh, Pharisees and scribes. He says, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. In other words, the tithe is, is one of the parts of the law, and tithing of all your possessions is one of the point, uh, parts of it. But he says, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. And he gives three weightier matters, justice, mercy, and faith. So these are going to be heavier branches, big branches that are right up coming off the trunk of the tree that are supporting these other things that are further out. But here in our text today, Jesus goes past all of the branches, no matter how big and weighty they are. He goes right past justice and mercy and faith, and he goes to the very trunk of the tree on which all the branches hang, even the really big branches like justice and mercy and faith. And the trunk of the tree, says Jesus, is love. First of all, love for God. And second, love for neighbor. He says that's the trunk of the tree. He says all the law and the prophets hang on that trunk. Now what does he mean by law and the prophets? That was a way, that was a Hebrew way of saying all of the Old Testament. All of the scriptures. In other words... All of God's dealings with Israel, all of his covenantal love and, and his deliverance of Israel, and his restoration and salvation project for the entire world, it all hangs on two obligations to love. And these two great commandments, I want you to notice three things about these two great commandments on which everything hangs. Number one, they are affirmative. They are affirmative. Most laws are negative. They say, don't do this or don't do that. If you go to a criminal code, it's all negative. If you go to a civil code, it's mostly all negative. If you go to the Ten Commandments, they're all negative, and most of the laws are. But these two great commandments on which everything hangs are affirmative. They tell us an obligation we have. They don't tell us anything to avoid. They don't tell us anything to not do or to not think or to not feel. They tell us something to do. Secondly, they are personal. By personal, I mean they apply to the inner person. Most laws only apply to the outer person. Most laws only apply to what you do. Even in God's law, the criminal portion of it only applies to actions. It does not criminalize what you're thinking in your heart. But the great law, the great trunk of the tree on which everything hangs is personal. It goes right to the inner man. And thirdly, these two great commands are relational. They assume relationship. Most laws do not. Most laws aren't dealing with relationships. It's just dealing, they don't, they don't depend upon whether you have a relationship with somebody else or not. These laws do. These laws assume a relationship with God and a relationship with other people. And they tell us what those relationships should be. Now, <clears throat> this is something that's often missed. The fact that these two great commands are affirmative, personal, 
and relational distinguishes God's law from every other legal code, ancient and modern. They often, uh, books often like to uh, compare and say that the law of Moses is similar to the code of Hammurabi, for example. Well, only if you look at it uh, on the surface. The code of Hammurabi says don't do a bunch of things and the law of Moses says don't do a bunch of things. And some of the things are the same. And some of the things are similar. Don't murder, don't steal, so forth. But when you look at the heart of it, if you go to the heart of it on which everything hangs, they have nothing in common. Nothing whatsoever. Okay. Now Jesus says everything hangs on these two commandments. And I think that word hang is significant. Again, picture the law as a great tree. A huge, sprawling, great tree. But picture it this way. This tree is rooted in heaven. The soil it grows out of is in heaven. It grows out of heaven and it grows downward toward the earth. So this is a tree. It's not a tree that's rooted in the earth growing upward toward heaven. It's a tree that's rooted in heaven growing downward toward the earth. The root of the tree is God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The trunk of the tree, as Jesus tells us, is love. First, it's God's love for us. <clears throat> In 1 John 4.10, the Apostle John says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. But that love is not the first love God had for us. The first love we see that God had for us, a love that was uh, uninitiated by us, was in creation. When as Psalm 8 tells us, He crowned us with glory and honor. He made us in His image. He made us to be His sons and daughters. He made us to have a relationship with Him. He made us to love and be loved by Him and to respond to Him in that way. And He put us over all His creation. That's how He gave us love, first of all. And then supremely, you would think it wouldn't, wouldn't be possible to do more than that, but God did. When we turn from him, he gave us his only begotten son. So this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So that's the first part of this trunk of this tree that is love. It is God's love. Okay? So we receive God's love, and then secondly, it is our love in response to God. And that's where the two great love commands come in. Our first response is to love God back, to love him with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And the second part of that is that we love one another. We love our neighbor as ourselves. 1 John 4:19. We love God because he first loved us. 1 John 4:8. He who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Okay. That is the trunk of the tree. And all of the branches, all of man's obligations, hang on that trunk and reach downward from God in heaven toward mankind and the earth. With that big picture in mind, let's look a little more closely at these two great commands. The first and greatest command to love God is part of what is called the Shema Israel, or sometimes you will hear the Shema, S-H-E-M-A. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. So Shema Israel means hear, O Israel. And it's called that because it's the first words of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This was the central verse for the nation of Israel. It was recited every morning and every evening, and still is by Orthodox Jews as the great prayer of Israel. The first part of it confesses Jehovah or Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the one true God. The second part states our proper response to the one true God who has loved us. And that command is to love God with all one's three different things. It says heart, it says soul, and it says strength. Now what does that mean? Heart means literally the central part. And therefore it refers to the inner man. And that means, that means the inner, the mind, the will, the heart, the emotions, everything, the inner man. That's what the heart refers to. Then it says soul. Soul literally means that which breathes. Therefore, it refers to our being, our life, our self. And by extension, it refers to, therefore, our desire and our passion. Okay? So soul refers to that which believes it's our whole being, it's our whole life. And then strength literally means muchness. Love God with all your muchness. Muchness means force. It means all you got. It means your force. It means your strength. It also means your abundance. Um, sometimes in the, in the Old Testament, uh, a firstborn child would be called the beginning of someone's strength. It was, a, it was part of their muchness. Okay? And, and the blessing of God that gives wealth. That wealth is all part of your muchness too. And so... Um, in the Talmud, which is a lot of the writings of the scribes and the, and, the, and the rabbis and so forth, they translated strength here as meaning possessions and money. Okay, so they focused on one aspect of it. Now, you notice in our text, Jesus doesn't say strength. Instead of strength, he says mind, which is a Greek word, which means the mind as the faculty of understanding and imagination and feeling and desiring and disposition. And then in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus uses both mind and strength. So he keeps the word strength in the Old Testament and he puts mind in there. He adds it. In Matthew here, he substitutes it. And we might wonder why does he do that? Well, I think what Jesus might have been doing is, is uh, responding to the fact that the scribes and the, and the Talmud had equated strength to just meaning wealth. And he's trying to counteract the idea that just by giving a bunch of money or just by being a good tither, you have thereby loved God with all your strength. Well, that may be, that's part of it. But I think Jesus is emphasizing here that's not all that that means. And by saying mind, he is, he, he is, he is adding this inner focus. It's not enough to just give a bunch of money or to be a good tither. That's not all that it means. So this duty here to love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength, all of our muchness, uh, it's echoed later in Deuteronomy in chapter 10. The same thing is kind of stated in different words. Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Simply this, fear the Lord your God, that is, respect him, hold him in awe. Walk in his ways and love him. And serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And keep his commandments and his statutes, which he has given to you 
for your good. For your good. So that is the first great command. Let's look a little more closely at the second great command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now that comes from Leviticus chapter 19. It is the heart of a passage that deals with being a source of life to those around you. That's the theme of the passage. Being a source of life to those around you and not doing anything to stand against the life of your neighbor. Okay, that's the phrase that's used there. Standing against the life of your neighbor. Don't stand against the life of your neighbor. What would be standing against the life of your neighbor? And that's what the passage goes into. Well, one thing would be homicide. That would be the most obvious example and the most extreme example of standing against the life of your neighbor. But Leviticus 19 gives other examples as well. One of them is hurting your neighbor's good name. Hurting your neighbor's good name, hurting their reputation by what you say about them. That can be by saying false things about them, or it can be by saying true things about them, which are designed to hurt. Another example in Leviticus 19 is holding a grudge against your neighbor, resenting your neighbor, being embittered against your neighbor. These are all ways that Leviticus 19 calls standing against the life of your neighbor. These are ways of robbing your neighbor of life. These are ways of sucking life out of your neighbor. And this is what Jesus was getting at in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that anyone who hates his brother in his heart is guilty of murder. You're guilty of taking life from your neighbor. He wasn't saying anything new there. He was saying something old. Okay? And all the other commands, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear fault witness, you shall not covenant, uh, covet. These are all forms of standing against the life of your neighbor, robbing your neighbor of life in one way or another. Paul sums it up in Romans 13.10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Love does no harm to a neighbor. So Leviticus 19 sets the affirmative command, love your neighbor as yourself, as being the opposite of standing against the life of your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself is the opposite of standing against the life of your neighbor. That means, by implication, that loving your neighbor as yourself is a source of life. It is a source of life to your neighbor. It is a way of giving life to your neighbor. Okay? So God has ordained it to where we, we receive life first and fundamentally from Him. But in his grace and his love, he's also ordained it so that we also are meant to receive life from one another. We receive God's life from him. We receive God's life from one another. Or we can shut off that life to one another. We can stand against one another's life. We can suck life away from one another. Okay? So, it also means by implication that we are always doing one or the other. In everything we do, we're either adding life to our neighbor, being a source of life to our neighbor, or we're taking life away from them. Those are our choices. Be a source of life or take life. Be a robber of life. Add life or take life. Those are our choices. And Jesus says that the second greatest command is a command to basically minister life to all around us by loving them as ourselves. 
So that is a little closer look at the two greatest commands. And that brings us then to the big picture, which is what I want to focus on as we turn toward application. The big picture. And I want to make three observations about these commands, how they relate to one another, and how they relate to life. First, the first observation is this. Love is a debt that can be paid but never paid off. Love is a debt that can be paid but never paid off. Love is the only debt that is good. Paul says in Romans 13:8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. Love is a good debt. The goal with love is to be current, up to the minute, on making one's payments. All other debts are forms of bondage. The debt of love is liberty, as long as you're current. You want to have cash in your hand, you want to have love in your hand, and you want to pay as you go. You want to pay by the minute. That's liberty. All other debts, as I said, are forms of bondage, and all other sins are failures to keep current on our debt of love. All other sins are failures to be current on our debts of love. All right? They are failures to give love that is doing owing. That's what every other sin is, a failure to give love that is doing owing to someone. So all other sins, we talk about sins of omission and commissions. What that means is that all sins are first and fundamentally sins of omission, failures to love. And then secondarily, they are sins of commission. You have to fail to love first before you can sin a sin of commission. So that is the first observation. Love is a debt that can be paid but never paid off. Even in eternity, love will be a debt that can be paid but never paid off. And it will be glorious. Second observation. Loving God and neighbor is the heart of life. It is the center of life. Loving God and neighbor is the heart or center of life. In fact, we might just say that loving God is life. And loving neighbor, as we've already said, is how we minister life. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20. He, sa he says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today that I have set before you life and death. He said a lot of words. He's already said 30 chapters full of words to the people in Deuteronomy. Okay? He's preached three big sermons to them. And he says, I don't want you to lose the forest for the trees. I, understand. I want you to understand what's going on here. He says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you. I have set before you life and death. This is life and death. That's what this is. And he says, choose life. That you and your descendants may live. And what does that mean? What does it mean to choose life? It means this. That you may love the Lord your God. That you may obey his voice. That you may cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days. That's what it's all about. God is life. There is no life apart from God. That's why it says in Proverbs 8 that those who hate me love death. You walk away from God, you walk away from life. You turn to God, you turn toward life. You love God, you love life. And you receive life. So the greatest command to love God with all you are is a way of saying, drink deeply of God. Drink deeply of God who is the well of life. And the second great command, love your neighbor as yourself, is a way of saying, give life. 
Minister life. Let that which flows through you be life. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what your age or your stage of life, no matter what you're calling, all of your duties, all your obligations, the answers to any questions you may have as to what you should do and what the will of God is, are simply a matter of drinking deeply of God who is life and being a source of life to those around you. Now, often it takes wisdom to know exactly what that means. Sometimes loving your neighbor as yourself means saying no. For loving your neighbor as yourself means seeking their good. That's what it means. You seek their good. Not necessarily what they want. But it is oftentimes a big help when life gets really complicating and confusing. And relationships get complicated and confusing. And you wonder what your obligation is. It's often a big help to just clarify and simplify things by, reme by remembering that you only really have two obligations. Just to love God, seek His good and glory, and to love your neighbor. That is, to seek their good. A lot of times it's a big help to clarify things like that. So that is the second observation. Loving God and neighbor is the heart and center of all of life. The third observation is this. Loving God and neighbor is the only path to fulfillment and happiness. Loving God and neighbor is the only path to fulfillment and happiness. We all know, the whole world knows, that loving and being loved is the key to happiness. Everybody knows that. That's why Ingrid, is it Mickelson or Michelson? The singer. Which one? Michelson? Okay. Ingrid Michelson. I'm with it. I'm with it. Um, can have a hit song built around the words, everybody, everybody wants to love, everybody, everybody wants to be loved. And the music is as simple as the words. And when I hear it, I hear that how simple that is, and I hear what a big hit it is, I just go, man, I'm working way too hard. And I'm just working way too hard. Anyway, everybody knows what she's saying. There's no dispute there. She can say that because everybody knows that. And everybody the world over is as busy as they can be trying to love and be loved because they want to be happy and they want to be fulfilled. It's just think how much of our lives revolve around the three human loves that C.S. Lewis talked about in his book, The Four Loves. He talked about storge, that's the Greek word, which means familial love. And it doesn't, just, it doesn't just mean the love in the family. It means the love that you have anytime you're thrown together with a group of people, not by your own choice, but by, by God, by sovereignty, by circumstance. Anytime you're thrown together with a group of people uh, that you have a bond with. That's certainly the case with family. We don't choose our uh, uh, families that we're born into. Uh, but it can also be the same thing in a military unit. It can be the same thing in a workplace. You don't choose and handpick everybody who's going to be there. So that's storge, or familial love. And then there's philia, which uh, means 
uh, friendship love or comrade love. And that's the love that you have toward people that you do choose to be with because you have a certain common interest. It may be that you're in a flying club or you have some other activity that you love or it's a, uh, you, you love music or it's some other activity and it's a group of people who come together because of that common bond and that common love. So that's comrade love. And then of course we have eros, which is romantic love. And we all know what that is. And you think about those three loves, family type love, workplace type love, you know, familial love, this is a family, uh, comrade love, and romantic love. Think about how much of our lives center around those three things. It accounts for almost really the whole of our lives. Most all of our joys come from when those loves are going well, right? Those loves and relationships are going well. And most all of our sorrows come from when they're going badly. There's problems in those loves. There's problems in those relationships. So everybody is trying to love and be loved. Everybody knows that's where happiness comes from. And yet the world is filled with unhappiness. There's so much disappointment. There's so much heartache. There's so much misery. All by people who are trying as hard as they can to love and be loved. Why? We need to ask why. The reason is what C.S. Lewis points out in his book. All human loves fail to deliver what they promise. All human loves collapse of their own weight because they're designed to be built on top of God's love. They're designed to be built on top of the trunk of the tree we talked about. Number one, receiving God's love. Number two, responding to God's love by loving God with all we are and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Built on top of loving God and neighbor, all human loves, family love, comrade love, romantic love, they work. They work built on top of loving God and neighbor. And they minister life. And they bring fulfillment and happiness. But apart from that, sound, uh, that foundation, all human loves are just false advertising. We just get suckered in every time. You see people, you see people go through these relationships over and over and over again, thinking this time it's going to be happiness. It's almost like a narcotic. This time heroin is going to bring me happiness. This time my addiction will bring me happiness. It never turns out that way. When we don't build those loves on the foundation of love, receiving God's love and then love for God and love for neighbor, the two great commandments, we're asking human loves to bear a weight that they were never designed to bear and they can't bear. They can't bear it. And so they collapse. Apart from that foundation, all human loves are just false advertising. The reason is this. Unbelievers, intent on being in charge of their own lives, must ultimately look out for their own interests, for there is no one else to do so. Unbelievers, intent on being in charge of their own lives, must ultimately look out for their own interests, for there is no one else to do so. They do not have the bedrock of God, who governs all things, Binding himself to them and binding his glory to their good. That's what God does for us. That's what God does for us in Christ. He binds himself 
to us forever. And he binds our good to his glory, which means it's going to happen. It's going to happen. That's what's behind the promise in Romans 8.28. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love him. This frees us up from the heaviest burden and the greatest anxiety of all, looking out for our own good. God takes care of that. God takes care of that. We don't have to worry about that. Further, God has ordered all things so that looking out for others' good, seeking our neighbor's good, is looking out for our own good. As a Christian, how do you look out for your own good? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you do it. This is only possible with God and in a world that he orders according to his law of love. Realizing this opens the door for the Christian to live a completely different life than the unbeliever. And to show that life to the unbeliever, and this is the basis for all Christian witness. This is the basis for all Christian witness. This is why Jesus says in John 13, by this all men will know you are my disciples when you love one another. In other words, it's talking about a different kind of love, a love that looks completely different than what people will find in the world. Without God's love to us, and us loving him in response, and loving neighbor as self, we all have to, at some level, be more concerned with making sure others do unto us as they ought, and we are not free to make our chief concern loving our neighbor as ourselves. And that is the key and core difference between those who walk with God and those who don't. It is not the difference between those who care about others and those who don't, for most unbelievers care about others. The difference is between those who must ultimately be careful to ensure that others do unto them as they ought, and those who are free to do unto others as they would have them to do unto them. Now that sounds a lot the same, that's a subtle difference, but it is very, very significant. It's very, very significant. That subtle difference is the difference between life and death. It's the difference between a living life and a living death. It is the difference between heaven and hell. Not just as a matter of where you go when you die, but also as a matter of a living foretaste now. And that's what the Bible teaches. Those who are on the path of death get a taste of hell, a foretaste of hell here. Those who are on the path of life get a foretaste of heaven here. And remember this, this is very important. The entrance to heaven or hell is not a departure from the path you have been on but an arrival at the destination toward which you have been traveling all along. Let me say that again. The entrance to heaven or hell is not a departure from the path you have been on, but an arrival at the destination toward which you have been traveling all along. We often think about heaven or hell like it's going to be a coin toss, and it's like, I wonder what's going to happen. It's just like you're going along this way and then you get beamed off the path to, to some unrelated place. People wonder, I wonder if I'll go to heaven or hell. 
What path are you on? What path are you walking? Are you walking with God? That's, that's, the, that's the issue. Are you walking with God? Are you walking on that path? When you die, you will be admitted. You will, have an, you will be an arrival. Where are you headed? You will arrive where you have been headed. That's where you're going to arrive when you die. You can change the path you're on. The thief on the cross changed the path he was on. You don't have to be on the path of walking with God for any requisite period of time. The thief on the cross was not on the path of life for very long, but he was on that path, and he arrived. And that's what Jesus promised him. Today you will be with me in paradise. He will, you will arrive. So the question is, what path are you walking on? Are you walking with God? And I want to conclude this morning with just a few points of practical application, getting even more practical. And I want to do so by looking at this question. How do we cultivate love for God? And I want to focus on that one because I hope I've established to you that we aren't even free to love our neighbor as ourselves. We aren't free to apply the golden rule until we learn how to receive God's love and we learn to love him in return. It's only when we love him in return that we can begin to love our neighbor and all the other things begin to fall into place. So how do we cultivate love for God? First, I want to give you here uh, three things. First, we, help, we cultivate a desire to love God. That's the first thing we have to do. We have to awaken in ourselves a desire to love God. It's very difficult to do something you don't want to do. It's very difficult to do something you don't have any desire to do. Then it just becomes a matter of discipline and forcing yourself. And when you're talking about love, that's not going to work. Cultivating desire to love God is what I've been trying to do in this sermon up to this point. That's what it's all there for. It's trying to cultivate and awaken and desire in us to love God. And I've tried to do this by showing you that it is more valuable than anything. It's more valuable than anything. Loving God is what you're made for. You were made to love and be loved by God. And that's the highest privilege possible. That's the highest privilege possible, not just in this life, in this world. That's the highest privilege imaginable. That you were made to love and be loved by God. Except it's the other way around. You were made to be loved by God and to love God. I mean, you can't get any higher than that, any better than that. That is something that will never change. And that is the source of all fulfillment and happiness and joy and pleasure. Psalm 16, at your right hand is fullness of joy, and in your presence are pleasures forevermore. So that is number one. Cultivate desire to love God. That's why I've said everything I've said up to this point. And so you want to meditate on those things to cultivate your desire to love God. Second, we must do what we would do with anyone that we want to cultivate love for. And what is that? You must spend time with God. If you want to cultivate love for anyone, you must spend time with them. You must get to know them, and that takes time. 
You must get to know who God is. You must get to know how he thinks, how he does things. You must get to know what he loves. You must get to know what he hates. And then spending time with God, and that means spending time with God in his word. It means spending time with God in his word. The very next verse in Deuteronomy 6, after the Shema Israel and the first great command, is this. These words shall be in your heart. That's the natural response to loving God. If you love God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind, the very next thing that is natural is that His words will be in your heart. Now that's the way it is always. Think about, think about a soldier who's off at war, writing letters back and forth to his fiancée. So you have a soldier who's off at war, and you have the fiancé who is back at home, and they're writing letters to one another. What do they do? They get the letters out again and again and again, and they read them over and over and over again. Why do you do that? You've already read that letter 50 times. You could probably recite it from memory. Why do you get it out again and read it one more time? Because it's not just information. A piece of your loved one is in that letter. A piece of your loved one is in that letter. And you want to have communion with them. You want to read that letter. You want to be close to them. And that's why you get it out one more time. And you read it one more time. There was a story in the newspaper just a few months ago of, um, of a, a soldier who got killed in World War II. And he had, um, he had a girl back here at home, and I, I, don't, I don't think they were engaged, but he, he wanted to ask her to marry him, uh, but he, he didn't know if he was going to live or die, and he wanted to make sure that he lived. Um, uh, he ended up dying near the end of the war, didn't make it all the way through, and so um, she married another guy from the hometown, and then just this last year, it turned out that um, his diary and everything uh, was donated to some kind of a museum, uh, World War II museum, and it was put on display uh, there. And uh, somebody, somehow she found out, so it's been since 1944 or something like that, all the way till today. Um, and part of the display was all of her letters. So he has all of her letters with him, holding them. And why is he doing that? Because there's a piece of her there in those letters. And he holds them dear. And so after all these years, there they are. Well, we can only give a piece of ourselves when we write a letter to a loved one. God gives himself to us in whole through his word because First of all, he's a perfect author. He's a perfect writer. You know, we try to say what we mean. We try to say what we feel, but you know how hard it is. Some people are better writers than others and can do a good job, but nobody can say everything they mean. God is not limited by those things. And furthermore, 
God sends his spirit to be with his word as it comes to us. And so we need to get his word out on a regular basis, and we need to read it. That's how we spend time with him. That's Jesus' whole point in Luke 24 when he appears after his resurrection to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he blinds eyes. He doesn't want them to recognize him. And he shares the word of God. He shares the scriptures with them. And then he goes and he breaks bread with them. And they talked about how our hearts burned within us when he opened the scriptures to us, and how he was then revealed to us in the breaking of bread. Jesus is signaling to every disciple for all of time, this is how I'm going to fellowship with you. This is how I'm going to fellowship with you. I'm going to meet with you by my spirit, with my word, and then through the koinonia of gathering uh, uh, Christians around the Lord's table. And so that's what we have to do. We have to spend time with God in his word. Third, if we want to cultivate love for God, we must, do, we must do what we do anytime we want to know and love someone in the most intimate way, and that is we build our lives around them so that we can go through life with them. When you fall in love, you want to marry someone, you want to build your life around them so you can go through life with them, all of life. That's what we must do with God. First and foremost, build our lives around God so that we can go through life with Him. Right? You're not ready to build your lives around a person, a husband or a wife, until you've built your life around God. If you build your life, you try to build your life around someone before you've built your life around God, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. Okay? So we want to build our lives around him and walk through him through life, and that means this. We must trust him. We must trust him. And this is why we face trials and temptations. The root of all temptation is this. This is what all temptation says at base. You cannot entrust your whole life, your whole happiness and fulfillment to God. Because he isn't completely and fully and absolutely committed to your good. That was exactly the temptation of Eve in the garden. That was the temptation of Eve in the garden. Trust is essential to every relationship. And if we want to know God, we have to walk with him. And if we want to walk with him, we have to trust him. And if we want to trust him, we need to face and overcome temptations that say this. God isn't fully committed to your good. Or it says, God may be fully committed to your good, but God is not fully in tune with your good. He doesn't really know you. He doesn't really understand you. He doesn't really know all your desires and your needs. Or it wants to say, God is not fully capable of ensuring your good. But one way or another, it says you cannot simply roll your entire life and your entire good and your entire happiness off of yourself on to God. Therefore, you must at some level take matters into your own hands. You must take matters into your own hands. That is the base of all temptations. That is the base of all temptations. Okay? 
Here's one of the most astounding things. You think nobody could love you and desire your good. Nobody could desire your happiness or know as much about your happiness as you. And you're wrong. God wants your happiness more than you do. God knows more about your happiness than you do. And God loves you more than you love yourself. And you can trust him. So in conclusion, what's our duty? Receive the love of God. Receive the love of God. Secondly, respond to love God, to the love of God. Love him with all you are. You were made to love and be loved by God. Do so. Secondly, you're free now to love your neighbor as yourself and to seek their good. Love is the good debt that we can pay but never pay off. So be current. Pay your, your debts of love on the moment as you go. Remember that love is the heart of life and it is the only path of fulfillment and joy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.